Allison. And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Best Together podcast. It's Allison here, and I am welcomed by two guests today. Our first guest is May Lane Carnes, and she is a 14-year-old child who has been diagnosed with cortical visual impairment, and she loves Braille, math, and art. Due to her CVI, May has a host of visual challenges that cause her to function at the level of legal blindness, even though her visual acuities are typical. In the past year, May has co-presented to the principals of Schools for the Blind and the Association for Education and Rehabilitation of the Blind, or AER, on the use of Nemeth code for middle school students with CVI. May co-organizes an ongoing CVI discussion group at Smith Kettlewell Eye Research Institute and serves on the board of the National Federation of the Blind of Vermont. Wow, May, you're 14 and that's a very lengthy bio. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And our second guest is Katie Lane Carnes, and she is May's mom. She is also the primary homeschooling parent to her two daughters in rural Vermont. When May was diagnosed with CVI two years ago, Katie began facilitating May's learning in Braille, the Nemeth Code, assistive technologies, orientation and mobility, and the ECC. Katie authored a paper, a case study on CVI reading and Braille that has been accepted for publication in 2024 by the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness on her family's learnings from May's experience. Katie's background is in music education and public election administration. Another lengthy bio. I love it. Welcome, Katie. Thank you so much for having us, Allison. It's a pleasure to be here. And reading bios is always, you know, impressive, but the fact that you were diagnosed two years ago and you both have done all of this in two years is what's really incredible. So I applaud you both for just jumping in and taking the bull by the horn, so to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's get started. I think most people who listen to this podcast know what cortical visual impairment is or cerebral visual impairment, but just as a quick uh, recap, this is a vision impairment that is very hard to diagnose because the eyes themselves can look completely normal. There may be no ocular issues whatsoever, but the brain and the eyes are not communicating properly, in some cases, not at all. Um, And so it can happen for a host of reasons. It can um, be diagnosed very early on. Uh, We see quite a lot of CVI kiddos at best in early intervention, but it can also be years before it goes diagnosed. And so we are very excited to actually talk with someone who has CVI and hear that lived experience. So let's start at the beginning. And Katie, I'm going to start with you. When did you first notice concerns with May's vision and what were those things that you noticed or those symptoms? Sure. So, um, for us, it was really digging in to figure out what was going on with May's print reading problems. Um, she had at about ages, uh, about age 10 years old, started talking about um, difficulty holding print in focus, having to squeeze her eyes in order to get the letters to hold still on the page, and the feeling that the page was oscillating in front of her. Yeah. So um, that that was like the thing that my husband and I had the skill set to connect to a possible vision issue. 
Um, and that was kind of like our entry point into looking into what could what could have been going wrong. So um, she may has typical acuities, like you said. So we had not thought there was any reason to be checking her visual system. Um, we had gone to a number of optometry appointments that were all kind of dead ends. And May was eventually diagnosed with convergence and accommodative insufficiency. So oculomotor problems that are based in the brain. Um, she did vision therapy and that kind of revealed many symptoms of visual and vestibular problems that we had no idea um, she was experiencing. To make a long story short, we persevered to get to evaluation by an optometrist who's a respected CVI researcher. And he did diagnose CVI and a number of specific higher level visual disorders. And we would eventually learn that in fact, CVI was the cause of a host of problems that prevent May from fluently reading um, print. Um, so it was really that digging in to figure out what was going on with her print reading problems that led us to learn about CVI. Um, and do you feel like it's been something there all along? Was there any sort of event? I know, and the reason I ask is, a lot of the children that we see in early intervention who get diagnosed with CVI, there's they have seizures or other um, brain trauma or brain um, insult or injury. Right. And so I'm just curious if um, it stems from anything in particular that you know of. Right. Well, um, what we have learned is that May's traumatic birth is what put her at risk for CVI. And our best understanding is that is that her birth was what caused it. She did experience extended oxygen loss, mm -hmm. a vacuum and forceps emergency delivery, and likely hypoglycemia in that first week following her birth. So it was a her birth was a pretty terrifying experience, but her APGAR score was a nine within five minutes of birth. And everyone in the emergency delivery room breathed a sigh of relief. Um, she did go on to meet all her developmental milestones and was an extremely expressive child. She, she had over a hundred signs by the time she was one year old and she became a very talkative toddler who loved to sing and paint and sculpt. Um, we didn't have any early indicators for developmental or language problems or learning disabilities. Um, but as, as we started to learn about the, the reading was what helped us recognize what, that there was something wrong. And then that kind of unraveled um, the functional vision, other functional vision problems that were um, impacting May that we had never, that we had realized were challenges for her, but we had never gotten answers to from, from professionals who we'd, who we'd reached out to earlier in life. For example, May did struggle with extreme dysregulation, highly complex sensory environments, um, crowded stores and parties were nightmares. She had trouble with lower visual field movement like dogs or toddlers. She always had difficulty near cars and traffic. And so it was pretty sobering to realize that this extreme emotional dysregulation in her earlier childhood, especially ages seven, eight, nine, were actually the result of her being functionally blind without access, without visual access to that environment and, and no one realizing why she was so frustrated and exhausted. Wow. Wow. And I love that you went back to the birth for us because in early intervention, you know, I'm often asked, well, who should we refer to you? And I say, even those that are just at risk for vision impairment, and I'll name Thank those you. things like prematurity or exposure to oxygen for prolonged amounts of time, traumatic birth, et cetera, because then we can at least um, watch for those signs of CVI because it you know, like I said, it's the most common diagnosis for children now in vision impairment world. So yeah. thank you for sharing that. 
Okay, May, now I want to talk to you. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. What do you remember all those years that you went undiagnosed? Oh, well, I think the most challenging part of not having a diagnosis for me was that in all of these situations, um, a lot of times that I was in that were not really at all appropriate for me to be in. So like uh, loud, noisy environments, parties, visually complex friends' houses. That was really challenging and I'd be really, really dysregulated and enraged. And the only way that I would do, that I would be able to be there is like in a state of like, I will die or I will survive. And that's what I thought was happening. And like mom was saying, nobody really knew what that was when we went for medical help. Um, And really that started when I turned seven because the expectations of what I was going to be able to independently do visually started to get like harder for me. Um, Because when when you're little, like your parents always there and you can be out in the world being inquisitive and like focusing on one person at a time. And like, you, you don't have to be aware of things. Um, And then I got very um, dysregulated and shut down and burnt out constantly from like seven onward. Um, And getting that diagnosis was so, so helpful because not only did it explain things and start giving me like, uh, explanations as to why I maybe can't, shouldn't, or won't go places that cause that amount of dysregulation, but also just having a word to be like, I don't necessarily know why this place is hard. I don't know why I'm so dysregulated, but it is because of this. And from that point, I'm going to let the adults then figure out why or how this is not working for me. I love that. Yes. Putting a name to it gives you so much more power and understanding. Do you feel like with peers that you could tell that something was a bit different in terms of your visual functioning or were you not thinking vision at all at the time? Well, I think no, nobody knows that their vision is different because everybody tends to assume that your vision is the same. So like if I would ever say like, oh, this, this bit of my vision, oh, it's so interesting how it does this. And then everybody's just like, oh, that must be what I experience. And I will help this young child better put words to that experience, which was not my experience. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think I was having such a different experience, like so far removed from what anybody else's experience was from that interaction, that I'm not sure I could have picked up that my peers uh, were having different challenges. And I think I was just trying so hard just to like survive from my perspective that I sometimes I would be so mad and frustrated at my friends for doing things that I perceived as dangerous or life-threatening that really weren't um and I would be extremely mad at them like why did you go walk there why did you talk to that person they are clearly like that is unsafe they'd be like no I want to go talk to this person and then a lot of times afterwards when I would talk to my mom about the experience she had a completely different view of what I was thinking had happened and I'd be like well I wish I had that information because that would have changed a lot of things yes oh my gosh I 
and I can't believe I'm going to say that I haven't thought of it that way, but I mean, my son is completely blind. And so I know that he mm -hmm. thinks that things are, I mean, I feel like he knows that I can see something or I know something that he doesn't know, mm -hmm. but I feel mm -hmm. like if he did have a little bit of vision, he'd probably be thinking everyone sees the same. And maybe he does. Maybe he thinks everyone's blind. I don't know, but yeah. that is fascinating. Yeah. So were you doing things to compensate, do you feel like, to kind of make up for that lack of visual functioning? Yes, absolutely. So I've developed so many compensatory strategies. Um, oh, the main one being that I can't visually recognize almost anything. So places, faces, letters, and objects. Um and so I have developed a compensatory strategy where I put emotions, words, and especially tactile experiences that I've had with any object or thing that I'm looking at. And that will help me know what I'm seeing. Because if I can think about what it feels like, then I know it exists, then I know what it is, then I know what I'm looking at. Are you going to be and a the visually impaired when you get a bit older? Because I really hope you are. <laughs> I am planning to be some sort of, uh, I'm not really sure what the word is for this type of person, but I would like to be some sort of a therapist or medical professional that kids can come to and be in an environment that looks and feels and sounds like a home or like a house that isn't a medical building and can come do fun stuff like art and tactile play and uh, clay and stuff like that. And that then I can help in that environment then help with the stressful bits of usually having to go to a doctor's like loud, bright, white, visually complex looking environment to get a diagnosis. I can do that without having to go through that scary environment and process. That is so beautiful. I love it. I love it so much. And Katie, so May was saying that getting that diagnosis was really helpful for her. Did you feel the same way, having a name put to what your daughter had been struggling with for all these years? Right. Yeah. I, I think when May was finally got that proper medical evaluation and diagnosis of CVI, it felt like I was thinking about what words would go with it. I think it's like relief and clarity and, and hope. Um, obviously this entire experiencing is complex and we experience the overwhelm that all families do who are going through this process, especially with the struggle to get the diagnosis. But by the time we had arrived at that low vision clinic appointment, we had spent the previous 18 months just working tirelessly to figure out what was happening with May's vision. We had no options left to pursue. There wasn't a doctor in our state who could evaluate for and diagnose CVI, we had reached out to our state's children's services, TBI agency. They had no experience with presentations of CVI like Maze and wanted nothing to do with us. Wow. And we even had a licensed optometrist use divination to encourage May to report she could see better while wearing what he called sacred geometry. Oh, <laughs> yes. No. We, so we had really, um, we had really run the gamut of, of what we could do within a, a hundred miles of our house. So when May's diagnosing optometrist met with her at that initial visit, it was the first time a professional saw her challenges and symptoms as part of a whole that absolutely made sense. Mm -hmm. um, and he he really had a framework for how visual impairment at the brain level impacts various developmental stages, including for people with typical acuities. So my husband and May and I just had, I think, instant gratitude 
Um, and like that feeling of support yeah. that like he believes us yeah. and he has solutions and mm-hmm. ways of then for me to be able and my family to be able to support me in the world. Right. And you I was getting felt seen and heard for the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. And I wonder too, there's been so much new research on CVI. I feel like CVI is becoming a more uh, talked about topic in the vision world. So maybe timing had something to do with it. I don't know, but I do feel like children are getting diagnosed earlier uh, and more often now for whatever reason, I guess it's the research, but. Oh. Right. And this doctor has um, extensive experience with um, older teens and young adults yeah. with CVI. He has truly talked to, interviewed um, and learned from them. And I think that that impacted so much yes. his ability to listen to may was 12 at the time. So to listen to what a 12 year old was reporting with, we didn't know if she had CVI at that appointment. We really were there for proper evaluation and that he could be connecting that both to what he had seen extensively with the younger population, mm-hmm. but also what he knew the, like, not that it's an end state, but you know, an adult, once someone becomes an adult yeah. and and may fit within his understanding of those stages. Yeah. So what I've heard and, you know, I have typical vision, so I don't know. And that's why I have people like you to talk to. But from what I've heard, if you have met one person with CVI, then you've met one person with CVI. Every experience is different. And the number one question I get asked by the parents we work with is, what does my child see? Um, can you tell me what they can and can't see? So Obviously, this is going to be just your experience, but as your lived experience with CVI, can you describe for us a bit what it's like or what you do see? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, first off, for acknowledging that every experience is different. Like me and my friends with CVI will have such different challenges as we're all being like this one visual problem is so hard. But um, for me, Um, my entire visual field will shake whenever I move. So if I do this, my visual field goes like that. You shook your head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I moved. It's like a camera that's strapped to somebody's head while they're running. So like whenever my head moves, my field will move with it, making it quite jarring. And then uh, my viewing field is about that big, like maybe the size of a cherry tomato. Um, And within that, I can't recognize um, objects, places, faces, or letters. And the only part of my vision that I think actually works correctly is my color vision. And I think one of the most ununderstood parts of my vision with like the general understanding of CVI and what kids are seeing is that for me, my vision as a default is unconscious. I do not see if I'm not using mediation strategies or compensatory strategies, uh, my vision is unconscious and I'm not getting that information. And if I want to see, that is an active choice that I have to make and maintain. So my a lot of people's vision is on a default on and always being used. But for me, I have to make that choice to use energy and like functional brain thinking power um, that I have to be actively constantly thinking about to see. Wow. So it's like you need to decide, do it, is this worth turning it on for and getting the vision mm-hmm. going? Cause it's such a, you know, expenditure of your energy and thinking, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. 
You know, and one thing, another thing um, with CVI, so we work with kids with all visual impairments and most of them, there's, you know, no hope for any progress or change in the vision. But a lot of people think that with CVI, because it's brain-based and the brain is somewhat malleable and especially with young, young kids who are, you know, their brain is still developing, that you can see some progress. Um, Have you seen changes in your vision over time? Do you feel like any strategies help you to see a bit better? My vision does not change ever. It will like over time or with strategies, it will change depending on the circumstance. So if there is loud noise, if there is distracting movement, if there is clutter, but that all has to do with environmental things. And it, it is more like, will I see nothing or will I not like hurt using my vision. Um, I think when people look at what I'm doing and think like you're making progress or you're seeing so good today, it is because my brain is functioning, has the energy to use all of my compensatory strategies, um, to use every other sense but my vision to do and accomplish tasks. So a lot of times people will think like, oh, you're, you're using your vision for this and you're doing everything with your vision. But my vision is quite unreliable and somewhat uncontrollable. And I'm usually using all of my cues of like, what can I see your face making some movement? So that means a facial expression you're making. Can I hear through your intonation what the right answer might be? Can I tell based on the larger formatting? that I can tell is happening on a page rather than actually reading? Can I tell based on like billions of context clues that I'm constantly trying to understand? So do you ever feel like the sighted world just wants you to use your vision more than you actually want to use it? Oh, absolutely. Um, the <laughs> our society is built around vision as like a baseline because vision is one of the easiest senses for most people to use. And humans love easy things that they can <laughs> that they don't have to expend energy to do. And um, most of like low vision and blindness resources is based on the bias that people are going to always want to use their vision if they can. The word low vision is an example of one of those biases because most people will say I have low vision instead of saying I am blind because if they can have the word low vision in their title, they're closer to having vision than having none vision. Um, and so that is that is one of the challenges that I have faced because I have 2020 acuities. And so most people think at most I will need things like magnified um, print and like stuff for low vision people. And for me, using my vision is always going to be tiring and exhausting. And I'm going to have much less memory and retention of what I've seen than if I do things auditorily or tactually. I am so glad you're saying this. I really feel like this is an important thing for the sighted world to hear. And I remember when my son, when I first met um, his now teacher, and she's she's blind as well. Um, she said to me, you know, does he have any light perception? Does he see anything? And I said, no, he's completely blind. And she said, oh, thank goodness. That's wonderful. And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> 
And she said, well, no one's going to try to get him to see. They're going to know like this kid cannot see. And so we have to do Braille and we have to just use the tactile um, Mm -hmm. sources and no one's going to try to fit him into the sighted world. So I think it is just so important to understand that not everyone wants to have, you know, their vision all the time. One of the challenges that I've faced specifically with that is that I cannot see and hear at the same time. If it looks like I can see it here at the same time, it's because I'm switching really, really fast to hear a little bit of the thing I want to hear and then look and then hear and then look and then hear and then look. Um, And so it can be really challenging if somebody is encouraging me to use my vision, like, look, look at the sheet, look at the, the slides that the teacher has, because then I can't hear what the teacher is saying and I can't hear what's happening or going on. So then the the complicated and incorrect visual information that I'm getting is um, going to then, I can't hear the auditory information that's going to give me clues as to what my visual information meant. So do you, uh, back to, I know it's it's an individual experience, mm-hmm. but you said you have quite a few friends who have CDI. Do you all kind of share your experiences and find any common threads or is it mostly each of you just has a different perspective? I mean, it really depends on each CVI or I'm talking to because a lot of times we can find some common ground um, and other things we do really differently. But I think one of the best examples of this was I have only met one of my friends with CVI in person once. Um, and we had gone to Montreal together because that was where we could both get to see each other. And we were, we were on the subway and Vermont doesn't have any subways. So it was one of the first times that I was actually using a subway and it was so overwhelming between the vision and overwhelm and the hearing overwhelm and the navigation overwhelm that the only way I could navigate it was with my long white cane and haptics that my parents were providing Uh, on my shoulder to tell me when the stop was coming up and where the door was. My friend was having a great time on the subway. She was like chatting it up with her family um, and she could hear perfectly fine on the subway. She wasn't overwhelmed, but then she had a lot of challenges with getting up when it was about to move. And if she didn't sit down before the train started moving, she would fall over. And then like, she has so much challenges with like stairs um, and like that lower visual field, which I don't have. And so it's so interesting to see our different challenges on the same uh, public transit system. Yes, it is so interesting. So Katie, you have homeschooled your children, both uh, May and her sister, and yeah. you're teaching Braille, you're teaching O&M. So tell me about that process. Were you considering other educational environments did you have may um attend other environments before doing homeschool or was that not even a part of the vision equation right well because may wasn't diagnosed until she was 12 um and she's always been homeschooled it wasn't it wasn't specifically or directly the reason that we homeschooled um However, as the years were going by, it was obvious that homeschool was a good choice for these other things that we were thinking were quirks. And we were we reached out for help around dysregulation and and um, some of those pieces that we I kept saying from the beginning, I think there's a nervous system dysregulation issue or a sensory issue. And it didn't seem so to her doctors. 
Um, and of course, they don't they didn't know about CVI. So we are quite passionate about sharing with people that homeschooling has been a huge asset for our neurodivergent children. Um, and I think as is often the case with homeschooling, you don't know when the kids are little exactly what's going on, you know, like quirky kids are quirky kids. And often what is um, problematic in a classroom environment is a huge asset in the homeschool. Yes. And I, I think that's what we found to be to be true. Like my background is in public school teaching and I come from a family of administrators and, and teachers. So we definitely thought that girls were going to go to school. But, um, you know, life will throw anyone a curveball. And one of our early curveballs was a, a pretty traumatic um, loss in our family life that caused a change in my work life and having May at home with me when she was only one year old. And um, survival for us at that moment meant living in the present moment and taking things one day at a time, which was obviously exhausting, but also wonderful with a one-year-old. <laughs> and we kind of built from there, really. And I did notice that May was somebody who we, it was early, it was obvious from her earliest days that she was very precocious, inquisitive, curious, and bright. But there was a process. I, I wouldn't call it a processing delay. She seemed to need her own time and space to fully observe and integrate what she was doing, whether that was with a bug or um, something at a museum. And so I was able to, because I was in a process of grief, I was able to create some space and buffer room around her in my protective role around myself. You know, we kind of grew together. And so I think um, May has gotten, has been able to um, have access to things that are a kind of a big ask or accommodation in a school environment, but are normal to do at home, like having a silent place to work or somewhere cozy to lay down when your visual system's overwhelmed or even pivoting to a completely new learning approach based on observational data, like turning to Braille. So um, May has gotten to know herself outside of that environment where she would have really had little autonomy or agency to make the adjustments needed for her yeah. brain to learn. And then we've seen we've seen her thrive, even as she has needed a lot of support. Um, the, May did go to preschool for a year and it was fine. Um, it, it was fine, but that teacher um, took a different job. And so we kept her home and always said, you know, we're making a decision for now. We can always pivot to something else. And we are um, secular homeschoolers who really embrace learning happening everywhere. So May's learning environments over the years have absolutely included it, they always include places outside of our home, like town hall or library, museums, farms. Yeah, the, the hairdresser, natural areas, um, informal groups, formal classes, whatever she would like to do. And I would say that since she got her long weight cane yeah. a little more than a year ago and Braille, her enthusiasm and energy capacity to decide to and like seek out those um, those activities on her own have grown immensely. Yeah. Amazing. And so, Katie, did you bring in TVIs, O&Ms? Did you learn all that yourself? Like, how are you doing all this? <laughs> yeah. You know, first, in, in homeschool, we don't recreate school at home, right? And so I think people hear that we're doing all of that, and they become a little overwhelmed or intimidated. And they always say, I could never do that. And the truth is when you're homeschooling, you can't recreate school at home. Well, at least we tried. I mean, <laughs> anytime I've tried to lean into what I know that works in the classroom, it's a total flop at home with my own kids. So oh. we are able to really focus on a thing that's important to us. Like um, crochet has been really important lately. And so we tuck in some long division and math inside of that. And May did that on the Perkins Braille Writer today. Mm -hmm. And um we're able to like expanded core curriculum. Learning about that was huge for me because I recognized that one of the reasons we homeschooled 
was because we could see that our child needed to know how to make her own lunch, how to make an apple pie. Like there was more learning through those sensory experiences and emotional co-regulating experiences and um, the connection between like, what does it mean to go to the apple orchard and then make the pie and then share the pie with my Grammy? Like all those things were actually important for a specific reason for this person, even though I think those are valuable for all children. It was really an homeschooling has allowed me to um, build experiences that would be very difficult in a contrived environment where she's reading about those experiences or not getting the chance to go apple picking at least a few years in a row and, and build up, as she's saying, those tactile smell, touch and emotional memories. That's That's been essential for her learning. So to answer your question with Braille and access tech and O&M, um, we did try for that in, in about 18 months, we tried with constant advocacy and we eventually did get a draft IEP through May school district. She was qualified thanks to that medical diagnosis. I feel like that's why it's important to state that we need a diagnostic code and we need doctors who know about it because she was able to qualify under the visual impairment category. Um, and in that time that it took to try and get the draft IEP, she learned Braille and then Mimic code and learned to use the screen reader. And she learned the basics of white cane travel. Oh um, my gosh. We, we have not yet ever met with a TVI. We would love to at some point. <laughs> we have never had a formal O&M lesson. We do, um, we've worked really hard to build a relationship within the blind community. And we meet weekly with a fluent braille reader who yeah. themselves is a CVIer for half an hour. We consult yeah. together. And we use that as a springboard for understanding more about May and May's learning process. Um, we have set up um, an IEC, IEP services plan and transition age services, but um, we're, we don't really have the luxury to wait for someone to do something about her non-visual skill access. This We really feel like mm -hmm. this is her life. And without those non-visual skills, she, she has been depressed and vulnerable and academically stagnating. And I think that's one that touches a little bit on one of the most important things that I think homeschool has given me, which is the ability to really quickly pivot and get to try mm. all of the techniques, skills and tools that I might be be able or need. And I think that's one of the most important things that you can do for kids is I didn't know I needed a white cane. I didn't know I needed Braille for a very long time. And then I had like maybe one or two quick encounters with both and was like when is this happening i need this this i i this is going to be the way that i live and survive and have a job and be successful in the world and same with access tech of like there are so many different reasons somebody might need a screen reader but nobody knows that you might need a screen reader until you get to try that screen reader and, and allison we took like kind of we continued the play-based approach that we'd done throughout throughout earlier homeschool life where it's it's terrifying to think I'm not qualified to teach Braille. That's what I thought at first. I thought the same thing about lots of things that we've explored in homeschool. And really for us, we have found that if there's a strong relationship, if there's happiness and, and we're approaching it with playfulness and op an open mind, we can get so much done. So we, mm -hmm. we started when she was 12 years old with a muffin tin and clay balls that we made Braille cells. Yeah. And just observe, like, how does she respond to this? And I was really scared to introduce it because of how much she has honestly been tortured by being engaged with print. We have tried everything. We have been over backwards, making it fun. We have done research-based approaches 
So to ask a child who's worked so hard to do something else that she could possibly fail at was really scary. Yeah. But we just watched what it looked like. And to see her, just like she does when she's talking to people, she could turn her face away to explore tactically the Braille cell. That was such a big learning moment for me to watch her exploring and making meaning while being able to turn her face away and not becoming exhausted. And that was the first time that I got literacy at 12 years old because I could never access print because I can't recognize letters and it is visually inaccessible. So that was the first time that I was making connections such as inside of words, there are individual letters. Those letters can be rearranged to make new words and whole sentences. She was so excited, Allison. She would be- yeah. She'd be moving her Braille flashcards around, making these very early reader foundational insights that we had been explicitly teaching for years. And we thought, oh my goodness, she's making these on her own the way we want to see that that first jump to like the alphabetic principle, for example. And she said to us, we have a huge magnet board. We were using a research-based um, or in Gillingham curriculum. She had physically been manipulating visual letters um, under some amount of duress. I mean, she wanted, she agreed to do it because she wanted to learn to read, but it was horrible for her to engage with. And so the same skill that she was able to appear to master was not really ever meaningful for her with no visual memory. She can't, she can't make a visual memory of anything she's seen. And she said to us, mama, you know, all those paper letters that you have on the magnet board, you'd realize there's nothing there. They're just paper mom. They're not letters and the Braille are letters. I I was so excited. We had, we tried this for like maybe two days. And yeah. within that first two days, it was like 7 PM and dark. And I had a piece of paper, like the round bit of a pinhead and like a squishy foam. And I was punching Braille. Oh. Like it was, it was not symmetrical or properly spaced or anything, but I was so excited. I was like, mom, I wrote a short story. I know you have to read it. She She made a short story with like, she had only learned maybe five letters. Yeah. And you were so amazed how many words you could make with five yeah. letters. Yeah. Gosh, I may, I am smiling ear to ear because one of my soapboxes is Braille and how it's supposed to be the default on an IEP for children with vision impairment, but it is not usually checked appropriately. And the yep. fact that you said print was torture for you, I think it's just yeah. so important for school districts to hear that for some of our children, print is torture and yeah. Braille is what brings literacy to them. And so I yeah. hate when it's not the default and you have to fight so hard with a school system to get it checked on that IEP. And Absolutely. Oh, yeah, we would have maybe like 15, 20 minute lessons at a time if we were lucky and then each imprint imprint and then each one would end in a meltdown and I would have to lay in bed for minutes afterwards and then we would do no instruction for the rest of the day that was it which is a really hard trade-off for a really bright kid who wants to like learn yeah. about the cold war or you know the history of fungus like she has so many interests she loves to learn that making that trade-off we avoided it. We avoided forcing her to for years. And then eventually, you know, that 15 to 20 minutes of print instruction was highly modified. Also, it wasn't, yeah. like, it wasn't like we just handed her a curriculum. I had it on a backlit screen with spaced letters and the right font. And, and it had to be blue on the background. We had to have a snack first. And I thought this can't, this can't be the way forward for a kid who wants to go to college. There's, there's not going to be a mom following this person around modifying materials in a way that no one else would ever do. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what we want for all of our children is independence. So that's right. Yeah. 
So with the, I'm just curious, I guess as a registered homeschool student, you can get Braille material, like Braille textbooks and things. Can you still get those from ordering through the powers that be at the school district or are you on your own for that? Right. So that's going to vary state to state. In our state, the school district may choose to to provide services and materials for children who are enrolled as homeschoolers, or they may choose to do nothing. And by and large, across the board in Vermont, nothing is provided when you choose to enroll a child in homeschool. So we do have a draft IEP, which we felt was important to start the paper trail and documentation as May heads towards a disability services office in college at some point. And, and just, just as a safety mechanism, but that, you know, what really helped was having the medical diagnosis allowed us to get membership at the National Library Service and our regional Braille library, where May borrowed a refreshable Braille display and a Braille writer for free. Um, it got us a case with our Division for the Blind and Visually Impaired in our state, which eventually will open up access for transition age services. Through, um, through my case manager, I got a Braille display. Right. She was able to um, qualify for quota funds, um, federal quota funds for borrowing materials. And we, no one, no one showed up to help us say, these are the ways you can go about it. We just dug and talked to other parents and blind people and found out we just kept submitting letters and writing. And then I think, um, yeah, I think that's the way that we've we've borrowed and gotten the most materials. Anytime there's something available um, nationally for a virtual class through a grant or something, we always sign up for it. Yep. Oh my gosh, it just shouldn't be so hard though. That makes me- That's right. Good. So this question is for both of you, but what do you wish people understood better or differently about CBI? I think it needs to be understood that CVI is this huge spectrum with uh, deaf blindness and multisensory processing challenges on that spectrum and that it is just so broad. Do you like, mean deaf blind in terms of hearing loss and CVI? Yeah, hearing loss and CVI or auditory processing disorder and CVI. Um, and I think it, I think people tend to get very overwhelmed with the just how complex it is like i think when you meet a person with cvi it is the most important thing to always believe what they say because everybody's cvi is so different and there are all these intricate ways that it is interconnected that takes years and years and years for both the cvi to understand but also like their closest uh person to help them with that cvi to understand Yes, it is a spectrum. And I, I mean, blindness is a spectrum, but then within blindness, yes. CBI is its own spectrum. That's very important. Yes. What about you, Katie? Right. You know, I have a few things that I wish people, people knew or that were amplified that a lot of parents already mm -hmm. know. First, the fact that we know there's one in 30 children in a regular classroom experiencing symptoms of CVI. And the vast majority of those kids can't have any way to know their vision is different from anyone else's. They can't be expected to report the problem that causes their struggles. And some of them do have 20-20 acuities. Um, some of those kids are gonna present like May did with reading problems that like is the flag that helps people realize what's going on and never attain instant visual recognition of letters. So they are going there are gonna be kids who need braille and or audio reading supports from a TVI. Um, and many, like May saying, many of these kids are going to have undiagnosed auditory processing disorder yeah. and should be considered on the deafblind spectrum. Next, um, I would love 
for people to know that CVIRs of any age need meaningful opportunities to strengthen their tactile sense for yep. learning. Um, I, I hope that people never rule out Braille, a white cane, 3D models, and tactile graphics for CVIRs, as well as appropriate opportunity. It should never be on a child to demonstrate after yep. two, two examples, like, oh, let's see how they like touching this. If you have a visual impairment, the experience of touching something is such an internal experience. We need to give meaningful and, and multiple opportunities for a child to demonstrate whether they can learn and express themselves through touch. And you can see, I've thought about this, Allison. And, oh, I and, love and, this. I'm just nodding my head and uh, clapping. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, one, one more part that I, I sure hope that when providers or professionals are, are learning about CVI, please know it's okay to talk with people with CVI and their families and then really truly listen to them. Mm -hmm. If a CVI tells you, for example, that they're terrified to cross the street and they cannot hear and see at the same time, please accept that as a fact, even if it does challenge your current understanding. We really don't need professionals who have an easy or simple fix for CVI challenges, but what we really do need are professionals who can stretch their comfort zones to be creative and flexible and curious. We've just been so grateful for how much good has come yeah. from providers and professionals who can listen, reflect, and help us untangle just one little strand of what yeah. our current understanding of our child is and trust that we can take that and, and run with it. And we don't, we don't need like a list of five things that are going to fix this. Cause we already know that's not going to happen. <laughs> no. And I, as a TBI myself, I, I constantly try to remind myself and, and I learned this first and foremost from being a parent of a child who's blind is that my son doesn't need to be fixed and whatever child I'm working yep. with doesn't need to be fixed. They just need Thank access. You. It's all about access. You know, how, yes. yeah. So I, I remind myself all the time because in the beginning with my son, I was going from doctor to doctor. How can I fix this? How can I fix this? Yeah. Finally, when I processed it and accepted it and realized that, you know, I don't need to fix anything. I just need to do things differently to make sure he's got that access. So I love that point so much. Thank mm -hmm. you. We often reframe when we're having a hard time with things. We often reframe things and how is May currently making sense of this situation and how could access be improved or how is lack of access impairing something mm -hmm. about this? And it's, it just makes it so much more generative instead mm -hmm. of like, oh my goodness, overwhelming. Yes. Yes. So if there is a child out there, let's say a 12 year old being diagnosed with CVI right now, what advice would you give to the parents or the child? Is there, you know, a specific resource you would point them to or mm. uh, something you'd, you'd recommend that they do? I think it is so important for you as a uh, um, person with CVI to know that talking to the other people with CVI, talking to the other blind people is how you're going to find the most community and support. And having those connections are going to tell you so much about your own self because getting to hear from peers and adults with CVI talk about their experience will make it so much easier to make those connections in your own head and also explain to help explain to your loved ones and parents about your experience and I think it's really important that you get to explore and have the time and energy and resources 
to get to try using other modalities and tools that might not that people might not want to give to you or might not be readily available because you won't know what tool you need and what um, accommodations you need till you have them and get access for the first time. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so important. Yeah. Anything for the parents? Sure. I. It's such a big question. I guess I'm I'm two years in now to May's that from May having been diagnosed with CVI, and I am realizing that just like with everything, this is an ongoing learning process that is probably yeah. never going to end. Um, and I've learned it is okay to state the basic truth regarding regardless of who is understanding it because CVI is so complex. I think it's easy to get caught in my own head around like how to phrase it, how to explain it right in order to help her get access. And that's such a difficult position to be in as a parent. So I've learned like if my child is, I've learned it's okay to just state that if your child is functionally blind and needs a thing, you can just tell people that. You don't need to wait to start advocating for those non-visual skills and tools and training that your instinct tells you your child needs. Just the same way as if none of us would wait if our child received a more recognized ocular diagnosis of vision loss. It's okay to start IEP meetings and emails and conversations with questions like, how are we gonna address access to reading materials for a functionally blind child? Or how is visual impairment impacting my kids' access to social learning? Or how do you plan to support O&M in this environment for a functionally blind child? If you know your child simply needs a chance with a white cane or audio reading training or braille instruction or any non-visual skill that is not typically considered for CVI, you really don't need to wait or gain further permission or qualifiers to remind people that your child is functionally blind. Yeah, also so important. Uh, I have loved talking to you both. I literally could just sit here all day and ask you all oh. questions. I'm so fascinated and you're both just so impressive and amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so appreciative. Thank you for having us. Allison, it's been a pleasure and thank you for the work you're doing with Beth mm -hmm. and the podcast. Appreciate it. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.